Today's sermon is about predestination. Now, as soon as I say this, I know that there are going to be some different responses from different people in the audience. There's going to be a very tiny minority of people here that are very happy to hear about this. And they're saying, oh, yay, we're going to talk about predestination. And that probably is, you know, Barry and JP. That's, that's about it. Tiny minority. There is what I believe to be the majority of people within the audience that they hear this and they know that predestination is some sort of a biblical term that's used a lot, but they may not completely understand what it means. And they've heard some different sorts of things and, you know, so they're, they're game for all of this. And then there is some other folks. A not insubstantial number of people that as soon as they heard that I'm going to be preaching on predestination, they turned to the person next to them. Predestination. What is he doing talking about predestination? I mean, for crying out loud, it's New Year. Should he be doing a New Year sermon? Oh, what you know, Maud, he's, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. I mean, you know, I, I know I'd rather hear a sermon on giving than I would one on predestination. Well, maybe if we pretend like we're going to the bathroom, we can sneak out the back door and no one will notice. You know, there's some people that as soon as they hear about predestination, they're, they're not excited about this at all. Well, the Anglican lectionary today has elected <coughs> that I would be preaching on predestination because they gave me Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. It's got an election all over the place. It's got predestination. It's, it's there. And so what I'm doing is I am willingly, with my full heart, doing that which I've been elected to do. So, um, the subject of predestination in this passage in particular has been sort of a controversial subject throughout all of church history. There have been some folks who have looked at passages like this and they have with, uh, with great desire to please God, this desire to understand what God teaches us. But then there have been a lot of other people who have looked at these sorts of passages, and they have become fussy. And so there have been major times in church history where major fussiness has broken out. Uh, subsequent to the writings of Augustine and Pelagius in the 400s, these sorts of things came about. And then Radbertus and Ratramnus talked about these sorts of things in the 800s, and controversy broke out. And then you may have heard about some stuff that went on in the 1600s between the remonstrance and the counter-remonstrance, who sometimes folks refer to today as the Arminians and the Calvinists. And so this sort of thing has been something that has seems to bring out the fussiness in people and it has been doing so for quite some time. But regardless, if we're going to talk about this passage at all, we have to talk a little bit about predestination because that is the foundation for everything in this passage. And so as we look at this passage together, I hope that we won't find an excuse to be fussy, but rather we will find this, that what God did in the past makes us praise him 
now and forever. What God has done in the past makes us praise him now and forever. And so we will be talking about the past, the present, and the future. And let's just begin with the word itself. What does predestination mean? And of course, you probably know if you look into a dictionary, what the dictionary definition of it means. It means to decide something beforehand. And, but what does it mean in a biblical context? And what does it mean within this passage? What does the Bible as a whole teach about this subject? And different people have looked at this word in different ways. And so we are going to go through three definitions of the word predestination and look at these three definitions in light of this passage. The first definition is one that is wrong. Predestination means that God predestined everyone everywhere to salvation but some people just refuse to be saved. Okay, so this is very common. This is one that I've heard a lot in, during my time in ministry is that God has predestined everybody, but that some refuse to be saved. Well, let's look at that in light of this passage. Verse 4, God chose or elected, you can translate that however you want, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So who does the choosing? God does. What is the result of that choosing? That we would be holy and blameless. Do you realize that if you are a believer that you are already considered to be holy and blameless? Because Jesus has already paid for your sins, right? He did that on the cross. And when you believed, he forgave all of your sins, past, present, and future you're already positionally holy and blameless. You're already a saint. And there will come a day when your actions will perfectly match what you are positionally. There will come a time when Jesus comes back where he's going to fix everything in our hearts and we're not going to want to sin anymore and we will truly be holy and blameless, not only with respect to our disposition to God, but we're going to act that way. That is what salvation brings about in our lives. What about those who continue in unbelief their entire lives? Are they holy and blameless? No. Huh. All right, well, let's look at another verse. Verse 5. You are predestined for adoption. And so if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you can definitely say that you have been adopted as a child of God. What about people who continue in unbelief? And they say that? Well, that doesn't make much sense, does it? All right, well, let's look at the second paragraph. Let's look at verses 11 and 14. In these verses, predestination is said to have a definite result. It results in true belief. It results in inheritance of eternal life in heaven itself. Can you say that about people who continue in unbelief? No, no, you can't. So it's wrong to say that predestination means that God predestined everyone for salvation, but some people refuse to be saved because clearly 
predestination results in certain things. Genuine belief, eternal life, adoption as the children of God, holiness, blamelessness. That is what predestination brings about, according to Paul. And you just can't say any of those things about people who continue in unbelief throughout their entire lives. So whatever predestination means, it cannot possibly mean that. Definition number two, and this is another one that I've heard quite a bit throughout the years. Predestination means that God looked into the future. This is back before he created anything. He looked into the future and he saw who was going to believe in him. And that group of people he chose and predestined to believe. That one's a little confusing. Let me read it one more time. (laughs) predestination means that God looked into the future he saw who was going to believe in him and those are the ones that he chose does that make sense all right well let's look at that in light of this passage Uh, God is to be praised according to Paul uh, because God chose us who is doing the choosing here God is definitely doing the choosing now let's look again at verse uh, at verse 5 God predestined us according to the purpose of our own will. No, it doesn't say that. God predestined us according to the purpose of his will, not ours. All right, well, let's, let's keep going. And uh, let's, let's go on. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That would be in verse 11. So he works everything according to the counsel of his will. Who does God consult when he goes about deciding about election and and everything else for that matter? Does he go in and does he say, what would you like to do? No, he doesn't. He's not consulting you at all. God is the one who is responsible for uh, for your salvation. You are not. And he does this according to a decision that he made himself according to the counsel of his own will. He did not consult you when he predestined you. And so this second definition has problems as well. You can't say that God looked into the future, saw who would believe in him, and those are the ones that he chose. Whatever predestination means, it can't possibly mean that. Third definition, this is Michael's definition, which quite frankly he stole from someone else, but this is mine. Predestination is a decision made by God even before the creation of the world in which he chose particular people to be saved, not because he foresaw a decision that they would make, but because he wanted to do so. So, predestination is a decision made by God even before the creation of the world in which he chose a particular people to be saved not because he saw a particular decision that they would make but simply because he wanted to do so so here's what we're talking about election is this thing that happens before god did all of the other stuff before god did all that stuff involved with creating you need to think back to the stuff that he did in genesis chapter 1 verse 1 you know when he created the heavens and the earth whatever this is it happened before all of that in the time before time. Now, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, gives us a little bit of insight into this decision. It makes it clear 
that at that time, the book of life was written. The book of life was written before the foundation of the world. Now, you may have heard of the book of life before. It is a book that contains the names of all of the people who eventually would believe in God and who would end up in heaven. When was that written? Before the foundation of the world itself. And so, um, election is also not by the, election is not by the foreknowledge of actions. It's not because God looked in the future and decided what you were going to do and then based his decision upon that. Rather, God works everything according to the counsel of his will. God made this plan for all the stuff that was going to happen, and he was making a plan which Paul calls a plan for the fullness of time, everything that was going to happen. And it is entirely by the counsel of his will in some way that, honestly, we can't completely understand. We're humans. We're not infinite, and we can't understand all of the things of God, but we do know this, that God made some sort of a plan for everything that was going to happen, and that includes the predestination of his people. So, what are we going to do with this? What have people done with this throughout the years? They look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and what do they start doing? They start getting fussy. That's precisely what do they do, right? Is that what you should be doing with this passage according to Paul? I think not. Now, in my own experience, these sorts of subjects have caused lots of problems and lots of fussiness. There are some people that look at these passages, they want to do what is right, and there are some people that look at these passages and they just immediately go out and they start doing something that is wrong. Um, within the Southern Baptist Convention here in the state of Alabama, at the state board, uh, at the Alabama State Board, there was a guy who had a position that is roughly equivalent to being a canon in the Anglican Church, and he made it his personal mission to make sure that no one who used my definition of predestination would ever get into a pulpit in the state of Alabama. And so he would go to all of these churches that were looking for a pastor, and he would show them all the warning signs of what, you know, what to ask. Ask them what they believe about predestination. If they say this, you don't want them, you don't want them. And then he would start telling all of these awful things that people are going to do if they believe in predestination. They're going to tell you that you can't do missions. They're going to tell you that you can't do this. They're going, they're going to make everybody mad and all this sort of stuff. And so that was his way of dealing with the problem. He went about it using less than noble means. And on the other side of the fence, there can be problems as well. I've known some folks who have uh, looked at my de definition of predestination, and they have, with great zeal, wanted to make sure that everyone believed in exactly the same thing and made it such a priority that they started to go out and look for arguments. It is as though they loved the argument more than they loved people. So what should you do with predestination? Well, certainly you shouldn't use it as a, as a means for fussiness. We are not called to that sort of thing. Uh, John tells us in 1 John 3.11 um, that you should love one another. That is what we should be like. 
when we look at people with a different view on predestination than we have, we should continue to love them. Whether you find yourself in the Armenian camp or whether you find yourself in the Calvinist camp. So the proper response to predestination, according to Paul, is certainly not fussiness, but is what? Praise to God. How does this passage begin? Let me read it. It begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does it end? It ends with, To the praise of his glory. What about the stuff in the middle? Verse 6, To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, To the praise of his glory. Do you think there's a theme here? If you're alive and well and you're reading this passage, you should be able to see what the theme is. You should be able to see Paul's central application for this passage. When you see the word predestination, your response should be, we have the best God ever. Our God is so cool. This is the sort of thing that makes me want to sing. This is the sort of thing that makes me want to tell other people about him. We have a wonderful God. This is the sort of thing that Rory and Nathan, you you guys that have lyrical ability, you guys should be writing songs about this. That's what you should do with predestination. You should sing about it. Here's an example. To you, O Lord, alone is due all glory and renown. To ourself we dare not take or rob you of your crown. You were yourself our surety in God's redemptive plan. And your grace was given to us long before the world began. That's what you should do with the doctrine of predestination. You should praise the God who did it. So, what does it mean for the present? We in the present have a mystery that has been made known to us, Paul says. Now, this isn't your typical mystery. And, you know, your typical mystery in, you know, American literature or something like that, you're going to have someone who is murdered, and then there's going to be a wife, and you think maybe she did it for the insurance money. And then maybe there's, it was his friend, you know, who he had a falling out with a week or two before. But then along comes a detective, and that detective very carefully follows all of the clues, and that leads them down this trail to the one who is the real killer. And of course, that is Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with a pipe. This isn't that kind of mystery. This kind of mystery is something that has not been understood, at least fully, but yet has been revealed, and it involves something very specific. God, or Paul tells us it involves God's big plan for everything. Here's how Paul puts it. The mystery is God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so that's what God's big plan is about. When you think of history, when I thought of history back in high school, and you're listening to all these wars and you're listening to all this stuff, you're thinking, history doesn't have any sort of a plan. It's just this, uh, like a bunch of stuff that happened. It's not like there's anything that pulls it together and, and gives it any sort of sense or any sort of purpose. Isn't that how you kind of felt in high school when you're studying history? But 
when you start looking at what God is doing, history does have a plan. It has a good plan. It has a plan that has been designed by someone who loves us very, very much. Now, we've talked a little bit about Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. We said, you know, there's this book of life that was written before the foundation of, of the world, but there is something else that happened that is associated with that, that is in that same phrase. There is also a lamb who was slain before the foundation. And that is, of course, God the Son. You see, God the Father had a plan to save a people. And God the Son, before the foundation of the world, willingly decided that he was going to die in the place of all of those people whose name was written in that book. And so Jesus' death on the cross was part of God's big plan, a plan for saving all of his people. And so Paul describes it like this in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, the mystery has been revealed to us. We know all about this big story. We know all of these things that, ha that we wouldn't know if God hadn't told us about. We, <laughs> we understand. We understand what God has been up to and what he is going to do in the future. We know how he promised to bring about a redeemer way back in the garden. We know how he said that he was going to bless the nations through Abraham. We know that he promised the sacrifice who was to come, who was going to pay for all the sins of people. And we know how God the Son was born as a little human being, as a baby, and grew up and lived this perfect life and who died in our place, and who took all the punishment and the shame that we deserved onto himself. And we know how he rose again. And we know that he will one day come back to claim all of his people, and how we will live forever in heaven with God himself, who is our greatest blessing of all. That's the mystery that has been revealed to us. That's the big story. We know what that is. And as a result, Paul says we have wisdom and insight that other people don't have. Think about it. Think about what that story should mean to you. We know that life isn't a bunch of meaningless, random happenings that have no purpose like we may have thought about when we were in history class in high school. We know that even the bad things are going to happen to us in 2023. Somehow, some way, are part of God's big plan, and they're going to be for his glory and for our good. We know that stuff isn't really that important. It doesn't matter if you have a nice car or a nice house. We have God. We have so much more. We know what's really important in life because we know the big story. We know this story that brings us joy and peace, and we know a story that needs to be shared with others in 2023 because this great story that is not a mystery to us at all, it has been revealed, is still a mystery to a lot of people. 
And we are the ones who need to tell them about it. We have wisdom and insight that has been lavished on us in grace because God's predestined plan for history has been revealed to us. What about the future? Paul says that the Holy Spirit put his seal upon you. What do you think of when you think of seal? This is what I think of. This is a seal. This is not the Holy Spirit seal. This is actually, it says Hogwarts on it. It's what we have, okay. And I need someone who is quite young to read something for me. Do I have any volunteers? Oh, good, 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 good. Can you read something for me? Okay. So you have to take it apart. And so what we'll do is we'll do this. And let's see if we can get that apart. We may have to rip it a little bit because that's kind of, see, like when you put your seal on something, you would know if somebody had been messing with it because there's no way to take it off without ripping a bunch of stuff. And that's good. And now, can you open that up and read it to us and tell us what it says? Adopted child of the great king, and you will inherit inherit eternal eternal life and heaven. Heaven. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate it. And so that's what a seal is. A seal is something that you use to mark something as your own. Let's say that you're sending a letter. You would want to make sure that it got to the person that you're sending to. And, you know, they would know who sent it as soon as they saw the seal. If you had something that you were uh, sending in trade, then you might put your seal upon it so that people would know that it is yours. And so the Holy Spirit has put his seal on you. What does that mean? He's, you belong to him. You are his in the most wonderful possible way the holy spirit's putting his seal on you means that your relationship with him is secure he's never going to give up on you you're always going to be his so when god predestined you for salvation he did so with the intent of forgiving your sins but wait there's more he also predestined you for adoption, to call you his very own, and to give you an inheritance. He said, this one is going to be my child, the one who inherits riches beyond belief. I'm going to give him a room in my house, and best of all, I'm going to give him myself, always and forever. When we think about that sort of thing, we should Praise God. Stuart Oyliot said this, Sooner than we dare believe, we shall be with Christ. Our bodies will be resurrected like his glorious body. Our characters will be perfectly holy and therefore perfectly happy. Sin will have gone and in therefore the curse. We shall be where there are no more tears. Death will be no more nor will there be any form of sorrow or pain. We shall bask in the light of the Lamb of God, enjoying perfect fellowship with Him, with His elect people and with the holy angels. Nothing will spoil this 
forever. Everything will be new. The new creation will be a world of divine beauty and love. And God will be all in all. If you are a believer, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And all of that will be yours. Let us pray. God, we pray that we would look at what you have done and thank you for it. We pray that you would use it to change our lives, to make us love you more, to make us appreciate you more. And we pray that you would bless this church in the coming year, that we would love each other and that we would love others and tell them the great story of what you have done in all of history. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing before I sit down. So I have preached on this passage, and I know that I didn't cover a whole lot of stuff. There's a lot in this passage. I preached on the main point, and I skipped most everything else. But worse, I have not answered a lot of questions that you might have about predestination. I know that. There's only so much you can do in a certain amount of time. And uh, so some of you have probably already been thinking, well, why didn't he talk about Prognosco? Why didn't he talk about superlapsarianism? Why didn't he talk about Molinism? Uh, there's only so much time, okay? And, uh, you know, some of these questions I can answer, and some of them, honestly, I can't because they're beyond human understanding. But I hope that this can be a means for you beginning your study of these sorts of things, perhaps beginning your study of Ephesians chapter 1. And so I'd invite you in the coming week to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and these verses that we've been studying. Study it carefully and write down all of your questions. And then when you're done writing them down, I want you to email them to me. My email address is jeff at St. Andrew. <laughs> That's G-E-O-F-F, -F, not G at St. Andrew HSV, HSV .com. Thank you.